0: Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Remember the Alamo. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is The Has Come To. Our inaugural episode into the last Metal Gear Solid entry, Ground Zeroes and the Phantom Pain. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhira Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. <laughs> In our Peace Walker intro episode, we discussed how the initial plans for that and Revengeance were some semblance of MGSV in Kojima's mind, though they would become projects unto themselves, obviously. Check out episode 38, An Army Without Borders, for all that discussion if you missed it. We also talked there about the Walkman trilogy, as dubbed by Joran Lee. MGSV as a trilogy of Peace Walker, Ground Zeroes, and The Phantom Pain, as they were built from the ground up with different design and modes of play than any previous solid title. The prominence of the Walkman, the overt and hidden V symbology, the direct continuation of story and character and gameplay, etc. MGSV officially, Ground Zeroes and The Phantom Pain, was developed under the name of Project Ogre, and from the outset was meant to be an open-world, 100-hour-plus experience created for, quote-unquote, universal appeal. And by that, I mean its multi-platform and had a scope of narrative with global interest. Not universal as in, quote-unquote, pleasing to all, given both the taboo subjects Kojima warned audiences about, and also because of the controversy about uh, The Phantom Pain's completion, which we will have takes on whether The Phantom Pain is a complete game, but that's a conversation for an upcoming episode. In February 2012, Kojima Productions began their staff recruitment for MGSV under the name Development Without Borders, including looking for engineers to help develop the Fox engine. August 30, 2012 would be the announcement of MGSV Ground Zeroes as an official prologue to the larger game, including a trailer that captures much of Ground Zero's opening scene. At the 2012 Spike Game Awards, the words The Phantom Pain appeared for the first time, a game under development by a so called Moby Dick Studios. There was no overt connection to MGS in the trailer, though it was a very popular fan theory right away. Kojima kept up this facade for a little while, claiming The Phantom Pain was separate from what he was working on, and would later reveal he wanted to get some feedback on the Fox engine without people's MGS biases affecting their opinions.
1: Which is unfortunate because he put too much MGS stuff in it. But yeah, that's that's actually a stunt that made sense. It was, it, it kind of seemed like that's what he was doing
0: with the whole uh, Joachim Mogren thing. Mm-hmm. It was just very funny. Which uh, The prelude to uh, GDC 2013 saw a shtick of sorts involving Jeff Keighley and Joachim Mogren, uh, who Brian just mentioned, the supposed designer behind Moby Dick Studios, and his face was wrapped in bandages like Venom Snake is in The Phantom Pain. Jokeem is an anagram for Kojima, by the way. The Phantom Pain demo shown to Keeley had no MGS callouts in it, but the Fox Engine logo was there. From that point on, Kojima's production team started to be more explicit that they were working on the Phantom Pain themselves, and on March 27th, 2013, the Phantom Pain would be confirmed as part of MGSV. A couple things Kojima said at this time, which I want to flag for the timeline, but we are going to discuss in later episodes. First was the announcement that David Hayter would not be back. We'll talk about that one in probably the next episode. Kojima did also say at the time that he did view this as his last Metal Gear Solid entry, though whether he still felt that way all the way through the end of production. Well, we'll discuss that eventually, too.
1: There's going to be a lot to discuss with uh, Kojima and perhaps Konami and perhaps any other... uh, Like there's there's a lot there's a lot to go into with the actual back and forth of what happened with that game, which I'm not even sure we know really yet. But yeah, it's
0: um, yeah we don't have like a full inside story on it or oral history. It's a lot of pieced together, a little bit of rumor, yeah, um, and a little bit of like reading in between the lines between Konami press releases and Kojima tweets and stuff like that.
1: Where he was like. Just watched a new movie, but then the movie is like a photo of uh, Konami's board of directors with like gunshots in them or something. <laughs> That'd be the only way you piece together from his Twitter because his Twitter is is like blank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just watched, a, just watched a movie. Just pet a dog. Like it's it's the it's the only way to use Twitter personally. Like that's uh, really what everyone should do. Just like a, a
0: diary of what they did, what movies they watched. Uh, He does uh, something I believe in is retweeting, you know, independent art and independent artists and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fan art, stuff like that. And he really gets into it because he retweets like Naked Snake, Ocelot, Yaoi stuff. (laughs) Um, And then just the day before we're recording, he retweeted... um, Someone did a mod in MGSV of Venom Snake, but in Quiet's outfit, (laughs) including like bra and fishnet stockings. And Venom Snake looks great in it. And Kojima retweeted it. So I'm sorry, I I
1: misspoke too. His Twitter is also for pictures of Norman Reedus. Yes, he loves Norman Reedus.
0: More than Mads is, is, is a good question. That's a question for another game. Yes. There would be a lot of back and forth about whether Ground Zeroes and The Phantom Pain would be released as one or two separate games, but a lot of that isn't very interesting. I think Kojima viewed them as existing similar to the tanker and plant stages of MGS2, which you kinda get if you have MGSV the complete experience. But in the end, the need to put out something is why Ground Zero ended up its own release. May and June would see the announcements of Kiefer Sutherland, Race and Revenge as the primary themes, and the 1984 setting, and uh, confirming that Big Boss would be 49 years of age. A new Metal Gear Online was announced as well. Multi-device interactivity was also announced, such as maps you can use on your mobile device as you play the game. Kojima started to get more into open-world design aspects in coming months. He felt that open-world's don't take the concept of distance seriously, and that empty space and travel time would be key components of mission surveillance and operation, working against the backdrop of enemy patrol cycles, real-time weather, and a day-night cycle. Kojima had wanted to do an open-world concept going back to MGS3, but this is the first time he really got to do it. Kojima was also forthcoming about the MGS canon inconsistencies. At a certain point, there were going to be things that don't line up exactly like previous entries would have you believe. Yoji Shinkawa, who was back again, of course, said something similar in a live Q&A about his MGSV character designs. He doesn't worry too much about anachronisms in terms of the Metal Gear Solid storyline or real-world timeline of technology. He just kind of does what looks cool and feels right for the characters. Yeah,
1: I like. Um, I like that he... I forgot that he did mention that... Travel time and surveillance and all that will be part of the game's, like, loop, feedback loop. And it very much is. And I actually – it's the thing that I think stands out most about MGSV even now compared to other open world games. Like, the fast – like, you don't fast travel. I mean, you can be picked up and dropped off by Pequot at different places, and that sort of counts as that. But, like, it's not – there's, there's a lot of the Trek is sort of the mission, and I, I love that. Like I've am I'm a big I'm always I've always liked that. I've always enjoyed that. That's why I like Breath of the Wild. That's the thing I like most about Red Dead. That's the thing I like most about pretty much anything that's not an Ubisoft open world game. I, I enjoy <clears> that personally quite a bit. So I, I forgot completely that he did mention that. I, I remember that. And the weather, I mean, we could talk about the Fox Engine at some point. It's Maybe the biggest tragedy of this game is that the Fox Engine has not been used for anything else. Soccer. Aside from some other game
0: that sucks. Oh, and Metal Gear Survive. Right. Um, We do have a full uh, gameplay episode coming up in our coverage, and that'll be our full Fox engine. Right now, I think in the world of 2022, we're kind of like open world games. Like Our negative opinion of that is because of, say, Assassin's Creed or... I'm trying to think of other, just kind of like fetch questy, yeah. um open worlds where they, they only exist to give you a checklist of things to do. And Metal Gear Solid V doesn't have a checklist per se. I mean, missions have objectives, but um, it's not like you're doing fetch quests. And you, yeah, you get around with quad. You can drive all sorts of vehicles between places. Um, you, there is a little bit of cardboard box fast travel, but that's also just something Metal Gear has always kind of done. Yeah, I kind of forgot about that. I think the kind of open world your game you're talking about
1: is uh, the Ubisoft style, like... Uh, or like Horizon Zero Dawn. Do you get shit vomited on your mini-map all the time? That's like the that's like the the core gameplay design of that. It's just making you, giving you stuff to do, checklists of stuff. Mm-hmm. So every time you get to a new area, it'll be like new fast travel point discovered. And then you'll look in your mini-map, it'll be 400 little icons and just th- that kind of game. That is not what this kind of game is. Really, even before... Um, this is even before Breath of the Wild, it was really the waypoint system was really up to you. Mm-hmm. Like you could kind of place them and move them, which is very refreshing for an open world game. Yeah. The only kinds of open world games I can really get into anymore are either ones that are built around open world writing and storytelling, which is really just uh, The Witcher. And then like mm-hmm. this, like this or the Breath of the Wild style of just like exploration for exploration's sake. I like that.
0: Yeah. I think the last time I played an open world game that wasn't like you know a breath of the wild or mgsv that i enjoyed was probably spider-man <sighs> and that's because i didn't fast travel in that either it was just fun to swing around kind of thing
1: yeah that's the other thing if you have if the movement is good then it'll it'll work and that game's movement is is basically perfect and it's fun it's just fun to be in like easily the most photorealistic new york ever yeah put in a game
0: marvel's uh new york which makes it uh yeah. also fun in its own way yeah yeah,
1: yeah watching from the edge of the circus for the games to begin
0: gladiators draw them Kojima-directed trailer came out at E3 2014, set to Mike Oldfield's Nuclear, which we just played for you. The trailer was introduced by a Mark Twain quote, "Anger is an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured." Anger being corrosive or dare I say venomous. We see our "quote unquote" big boss walking through corpses and carnage, eulogizing his comrades as well as many of the game's other major players. Kaz, Huey, Quiet, Eli, Ocelot. Later in 2014, more gameplay demos would reveal new elements, including the buddy system for missions. Quiet was shown first, and later, D-Dog would also be revealed. Harry, Gregson and Williams came back for MGSV, but this time as a phantom. I mean, producer. The score itself was composed by Ludwig Forsell, Justin Barnett, and Daniel James. The score borrowed heavily from Peace Walker, but also there are a lot of original new pieces to the Metal Gear saga, while not really relying on any of the older themes. However, those older MGS musics would be available to play on your Walkman during gameplay, as would several real-life musical hits from in and around 1984. It's an equal mix of Kojima's favorite songs, as well as thematically appropriate songs to this game's themes and story. We'll dedicate way more time to the music of MGSV in a future episode as well. Donna Burke is back as well, having sung Heaven's Divide for the Peace Walker soundtrack. She would pen this song's main theme, Sins of the Father, with that iconic whale used in trailers and the game itself when passing time with your Psycho watch and e-cigar. She also provides the voice of your iDroid, your home base for management, maps, helicopter calls, and more. We'll get to that in depth eventually as well. September 1st, 2015 would be the announced release date for MGSV, The Phantom Pain, but near the end of March 2015 is when the Kojima-Konami feud started heating up. Kojima was suspended, and not long afterwards, it became clear that Kojima would be parting ways with the company following this game. I didn't follow the production and industry news that closely at the time, so Brian, anything you want to say about this? I,
1: mean, I guess I'd, I don't know if I followed it, it was more just... A thing you saw—it—it was definitely obvious by the time the game came out. Well, there was there was some pub up about it in, like you said, in in March, April, and May, I think. And then I don't think they did much at E three that year. And then I think it just sort of—I remember by July or August, it was just kind of out there that he was he was done. Mm -hmm. So it was a little bittersweet playing the game, but I was more just excited to play the game. Like, (laughs) yeah. I, that's one of the last games I can distinctly remember. I pre-downloaded it. I mean, I pre-download games a lot, especially on Game Pass, but generally I'll pre-download a game like at like nine at night and then the next morning or when I get off work the next night, I'll play it. That's one of the last games in the, in the last five or se- oh, seven years now, the last decade or so that since you know since I've been like a, a working adult and don't have infinite free time. Um, that I played at midnight and played till like four in the morning mm-hmm. and then fell asleep and almost missed class. So that's definitely one of the last like big release events I, I've been a part of. I, you know, I don't go to GameStop releases anymore. I used to, I probably been to like 20 of them, but uh, a lot of Halos, a lot of NBA 2Ks, a lot of mass effects, that kind of stuff. And that, that was, you know, that's all early 2010s when I was, I had a car and no job. So
0: Yeah, no, that's actually a great transition because now we'll get into the release of the game. Ground Zeroes released in North America on March 18, 2014, and other regions followed by the end of the month. Japanese Xbox One and PC versions came by year's end. It would end up shipping 1 million copies by the end of April. Game scores were all over the place for Ground Zeroes, mostly because of how little game there was for the $40-ish price tag. For someone like me, who had a good job at the time and spared no expense on Metal Gears, it wasn't much of a decision. I was totally getting that game right away. But um, I know we talk a lot about, or we as in the culture talks about, getting your value for a $60 game these days. Yeah. Um, so do you have any thoughts on the $40 price tag?
1: It's not. I mean, it's a little much. It's a little small for a $40 game. But like the fact that they cut the price at all is is unique. I don't think that would do that now. The wouldn't do that.
0: No. <laughs> They'll charge $60 for Bowser's Bowser's Fury. They don't give a shit. I was gonna say I think if this game came out at $30, I think that'd be perfect. And I do think there's more game here than I think people would it because a lot of people are coming here and they want to play the main mission. I feel weird because I I this is a game that I uh, ground series is a game that I game flied It's one of
1: the yeah it was in that period of time when, when I still did that when that was a thing people could do. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting it. I had to send it to my mother's, I think, where she was living in a this big apartment because I think, why couldn't I send it to my dad's. Was it, they didn't have, yeah, he didn't have like a real mailbox. That's right. So I actually played that game at my mother's and I just stayed there for like four or five days and went to school from there. And I beat everything in that game in like a week,
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe like five or six days. And then I sent it back. But I don't know. There's there's enough like side stuff in, in Round Zero's. That I think $40 is not unreasonable. People really don't like it. <sighs> I'm not saying it's I want games to be more expensive but but games were $60 in like 2004, 2005. What else in America has been that inflation proof for this long?
0: Yeah. Actually, I'm thinking back um cuz late Super Nintendo games and n 64 games like pushed $70. Yeah. Um it's, I and like uh I think there were a couple $80 games on the N64 to be honest. There probably were, which is an insane. I mean that's that's now it would be like $120. Mm-hmm. For a game. And I, I think that's also part of the reason how uh, Sony and Microsoft were able to make up some ground in terms of market share was because when they're releasing just CDs and DVDs, you can price them. Because uh, like PlayStation 2 games came in around like $40. Yeah, 40 $50. Yeah. A 50 for like, you know, a top tier, and MGS2, a Final Fantasy, but... They they were more affordable, and part of that is because they weren't proprietary cartridges and all the like. Yeah, so.
1: yeah. The cartridges became we use prohibitively expensive too much because it's a it's a it's a fun lyrical phrase, but like that they became too expensive. Like they, they couldn't sell them at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Which is why Nintendo finally switched to CDs, but they switched to little tiny CDs that you couldn't burn because <laughs> they were that worried about it. It really took them a while. They're just now starting to really align themselves with like the rest of technology like it's really it's very nice that you don't have to go buy a specific like 45 five dollar charger for your switch you could just get like any anything that you charge C will charge it like it my phone charger will charge my switch and that's uh very nice it's very good that they finally did that
0: yeah i know you shared a little bit about your first week with um ground zeros is there anything else you want to share about the first time you played it See, I don't think I played it at midnight like I did with V. I think I just played it after school. But I, I remember it was definitely
1: – I played it not, pretty much nothing but that for a full week, pretty basically. Like I don't think I even watched games because I think I had finished Metroid Prime 3. That's the only other game I really remember beating Where at that apartment my mother lived at. But, yeah, I, I put a lot of time into that. I'm trying to think of how long – I think I did basically everything on it. Yeah, because I had rented it. I was going to send it back. So I think – yeah, when it, when it ended up coming on back on Xbox for, on Games with Gold, I downloaded it and I opened it up and I had like I done, I had nothing to do, so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I did beat that game. I don't think I've really touched it since. Uh, maybe I, I think I messed with it a couple times before, like before I replayed V for the first time, which would have been in like 2017. I may have jumped in and done the the quick story run. Because I definitely feel like I've done that more than once. But yeah, I, mean, I did everything. I did all the riding stuff. I did
0: all that shit the first time through. I, you know, I was into the ride and stuff. Yeah. And we we, we definitely have uh, an episode where we're going to talk about all the side missions and extra stuff yeah. in that game. So it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. For me, the first time, you know, game length aside, I was just like super into this game. Um, the first thing I honestly noticed was just how smooth the animation was just because I'm so infam- intimately familiar with MGS4 and Peace Walker that just watching Snake go from standing and into his prone and crawling position all in one fluid motion, like that immediately triggered like my lizard brain or my reptile pot or whatever you want to call it. Like, oh, that's cool. This is definitely an advancement of the technology and the visuals. Hearing Here's to You, uh, which was in the you know, trailer for Ground Zeroes, but also is part of the opening scene um, that immediately puts you in that Metal Gear Solid Four, or it's picking up where we thought the saga ended and telling now a new story, which is kind of cool in its own way. And I like loved uh, the rain, the weather, um, all that stuff was not new to Metal Gear, but it's like. Everything was kind of like in MGS three and four, like determined to a map or tied to a specific map. Yeah. Um, And now seeing it kind of change in real time. And then the different side missions would all be set during different times of day and during different weather scenarios. It's not a huge map, especially compared to the Phantom Pain, but there's a lot of places to go check out, crawl over. Yeah. um, A lot of corners to check behind. Um, There's a fair amount of vehicles that you can play with, like you can... There's trucks, there's ATVs, there's tanks, there's Jeeps. Uh, So there was just a lot there. So it's not like a 40-hour game, but I might have almost gotten 40 hours out of it the first time through. Charitably, it is like an eight-hour game. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, The main mission, if you actually know where you're going, you can beat in about three to four minutes. Yeah. And most of that is travel time, uh, to be honest. It's not even... um, There is some like what's it called? Story scenes in the middle of it that you have to skip through. But yeah, I played it exhaustively when I got it. Um, I played it really quickly again before the Phantom Pain came out. But then once the Phantom Pain was out, I didn't even consider going back to touch this game. Yeah, I think the last time I touched it was when I started playing all the games before we started this podcast. I'm like, well, I might as well just throw this in again, because it's like a 90 minute experience in full. So I did that. Um, and then I played it obviously now again for this podcast, but it's not something I, when I think about, oh, I want to go play MGS and I think about this era of MGS. I'm just plugging in the Phantom Pain because there's just a lot more game there. Yeah. A year and a half later on September 1st, 2015, MGSV The Phantom Pain released. Three million copies shipped in the first five days of release, and it grossed more on its launch date, $179 million, than Avengers Age of Ultron and Jurassic World did on their opening days combined, which were released earlier that summer. It would end up shipping yet another three million copies by the end of the year. October 2016 would see the release of the definitive experience, packaging the two V titles. And like most MGS games before it, The Phantom Pain received a novelization written by Hitori Nojima. Critically, the game was a resounding hit. 10 out of 10s were many, 9 out of 10s were the lower end of most rating scores. Game was praised for being huge, both physically and in terms of what to do. One of the most refined gameplay experiences, probably the best stealth game of all time, you name it, superlatives about 90% of this game. The opinions on the game's narrative were mixed, as well as how it engaged in some of those quote-unquote taboo subjects Kojima mentioned earlier. I want to hold off on discussing those taboo subjects as well, which range from Quiet's depiction to sexual abuse amongst minors, for an episode where it's both germane and we can give it a little more thoughtful consideration. Regardless, no matter how you slice it, MGSV was a massive success, despite the delayed production cycle and rift between Kojima and Konami. So, Brian, where were you when the Phantom Pain released? Uh, I was (laughs) living at my dad's and
1: waiting at uh, sitting, tapping my fingers from uh, like 1145 to midnight on uh, August 30th, 2015, because I was waiting to play that shit. I was ready. (laughs) This is the first. This one and Revengeance are the only two that – but, I yeah, I didn't play Peace Walker when it came out because I didn't have a PSP. So yeah, this is when *Prevenge* are the only two that I got. Like when they came out, and I think Revenge may have been like a day or two after release, but I, I did I did have it pretty quickly. And yeah, I was I was very excited. Like I said, it's one of the most exciting excited I've ever been for a game release. Really, it's at the level that like a Halo release or Mass Effect release was for me, where I was like counting down days to it and getting ready, and like trying to beat other games so I didn't have anything else to play for two or three weeks. And I don't think I did so. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I think that's the same. Like, the, the other thing that really compares for me is, like, a Zelda release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, like, one of the big, like, oh, my God, I'm, like, thinking about this months ahead of time and stuff like that. If there's like ever that. another Metroid release, I'll be like that. Mm-hmm.
1: I try to think – I think I finished oh, – I think I did just beat the first – the prologue mission that night, and then I went to bed, and then I played. But I, I may have done – I may have done the first Rescued Cause and then, that, like, one of those other two – because those – after the cosmos and those next two or three are pretty short missions you could do them. so maybe i did do that because maybe i was awake till like four in the morning
0: i think i had your four, the experience you first said you had so um i had pre-ordered this game you know for day one. Oh yeah um i i do physical copies uh and i reserved at my local GameStop, which i no longer support um but i picked it up when i got off work that tuesday and i had already taken wednesday off like obviously it's the new and possibly last Metal Gear game.
1: I think that's one of the first games I digitally pre-ordered. Mm-hmm. I remember there was something I couldn't get a copy of it, or there wasn't like a midnight release. Maybe there wasn't a midnight release. That might have been it. So I was like, I'm just going to play it at midnight, which is fine with me. I still, I still have that digital copy. So
0: until they figure out they can charge us for it again, I'll have it. <laughs> that first night, I only played through the hospital mission and really just savored every moment of it. The next day, I rode out with Ocelot in Afghanistan, and the rest is history. You brought the legend back to life. Exactly. We'll get into more detail when we dive into this game properly, but it was, and maybe still is, my favorite game of the generation, and among my top three games of, let's say, the last 15 years or so. I've said repeatedly that I love Metal Gear Solid as much for the stealth gameplay as I do its story and themes, and this game gave so much in terms of replayable experiences, customizable weapons, vehicles, characters, mother bases, logos, etc. Um, I'd often do missions with the utmost patience and time, taking out all outposts and radio communications on non-lethal perfect stealth runs, or I'd come in other times with a tank or sprinting in on my horse. There was just so much to do and also just a million ways to do it. In the end, over the last seven years or so, I've put in over 400, maybe 450 hours into this game. And honestly, I would be pushing 500 if I wasn't kind of rushing through the game for this uh, podcast play before I switch my own podcast gears in real life. But by the time September uh, came around, uh, 2015 had already been a big year in games. Most prominently was The Witcher 3, Shovel Knight, and Bloodborne in the early parts of the year, with GTA 5 arriving to PC, and The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask releasing for Nintendo 3DS also being notable. Oh, yes. Fallout 4, Just Cause, Life is Strange, Rise of the Tomb Raider, and Batman Arkham Knight are some of the other major titles from the year, and I actually played those last two, but uh, Brian, uh, Games of 2015, where were you at?
1: Uh, I mean, that's when I was definitely playing everything that isn't released. Yeah, I mean, Arkham Knight is fine. It has its problems. Um, yeah, I definitely, I'm a, I mean, I like Bloodborne. I enjoyed Bloodborne. That's I, When I finished Bloodborne, I basically said I'm done doing it. I don't need to play any more Frontsoft games. I haven't. So I haven't played Old Ring yet. But definitely the only game I think is close in my heart to MGSV from that year is... I mean, I, I, I'm sad I can't even say Halo 5. Halo 5 is fine. Mm-hmm. But it's it's Life is Strange, and Life is Strange is like the opposite end of the spectrum as far as scope and like prestige comes. Mm-hmm. But it's such a strange... I mean, it's basically Donnie Darko the game. I know the, the game would like you to think it's a Twin Peaks game, but it's a Donnie Darko game. So that's the only one that's really close to me as far as just affection. I do think it's interesting. I actually just looked it up on Backlogged, which I'm obsessed with because it makes me it lets me do lists. I love lists. I have MBSV as the twelfth best game of that generation, but that technically doesn't count because I have Hitman one, two, and three on there, and that's actually one game. So it's top ten, top ten for the generation, which for me is it puts it at a level of where it's basically untouchable. Like if I play enough games that if. I think a game is that good then it's it's a game that I have only minor flaws with and I think is more or less, I, that's what I would give a 10 out of 10. Those are my 10 out of 10 games because I have like Prey, Mario Odyssey, Outer Wilds, Hades, Dishonored 2, Hitman Games, Breath of the Wild, Nier, and Kentucky Route Zero. And like I love all of those games unreservedly. So yeah, I really don't have much, much complaints about MGSV. I think we'll get into that later. Like the only problems with it are just the how finished it is or isn't but um i really i really it's it's a great like it's just mechanically it's it's like pure in a way that that very few games are it just feels it does feel like like that's one of the positives of of this being his last game it does sort of feel i'm not saying like kojima coded the fucking
0: right right right
1: mechanics of the game but it does feel like the game he wanted to make like mechanically for a long time Mm -hmm. that's i think what he he really loves and admires about like Intelligence work is like staking out, and like that's why he put in the stuff MGS4, the city stuff. He likes like John LeCarre stuff. Like he likes that kind of like slow, methodical, like stealth stuff. Mm-hmm. Really, that's that's the hallmark of the series. Like that's what all the stuff was supposed to be for. The Salton radar, the all the gadgets it was just like uh, very slowly making your way across a large environment full of enemies.
0: And in an environment that's uh, rapidly changing at all times, or not yeah. necessarily rapidly, but he's always talked about how it's environment first, and this yeah. allowed him to invoke every possible variable in an environment from, like, enemy patrols, um, random wild animals, and then the weather and... You know. Sandstorms, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, this game
1: is about as good, like, mechanically, I think it's about as good as I've ever. I just really, it's satisfying to play. Just playing, replaying parts of it again over the last couple of months I've just been like part of that is the animation quality, like you said, part of that is is just the sound design, but part of it is just it's just a smooth game. Like it's really fun to play. I have a friend who has ever played a Metal Gear Solid game before or since, who I convinced to buy it for twenty bucks just because like you play it for ten hours. You'll just have fun running around and he did. So, you know, I play this, compare this to a game like Cyberpunk, which I bring up a lot, but it's because it's like a important game which is super janky even now. Like it's not that satisfying to play and it's really night and day. Arcades games are the only games that are close to me as far as just like that feeling.
0: Like I'm going to talk about a game I actually really, really love and that's Red Dead Redemption 2. Yeah. But, but sometimes it just has way too much happening with its controls that are everything are yes. like, if you're here, you know, it says R2 does this, but if you're one pixel over, um, you know, R2 is then like put your weapon in your horse or something like that. It's cumbersome. Yes. And I've seen a lot of games, even Elden Ring, a game I absolutely love. And it is, like, my other, like, favorite game from the last 15 years. It has a little too much going on at times, and you have to kind of rework the controls for how it works for you. Yeah. Everything in Metal Gear Solid B is perfect. Like, you're never really doing an action you don't want to do. Um, everything is very intuitively mapped, and once you get the feel for it, it, it feels great. Honestly, it's almost like ASMR to me at this point, how soothing it is to just play that game um like I don't know it just it feels good navigating's good I like the fact that pressing down on l3 is how you Sprint I hate when the Sprint is anything other than something to do with the actual analog stick yeah yeah I think it's just like it's just very simple design and some of it is from mgs4 um you know some of the basic controls That's right Halo 4 you've been called out <laughs> um I think about it um I had to change it for Elden Ring specifically because it was a different button to sprint. And I'm like, well, then the button to, you know, when you press down on the L3, you know, does some kind of magic spell. And I'm like, when I try to move the stick in one direction or another, sometimes I press down on it. Yeah. Um, so I'm just automatically doing some other action than I want to. So actually, I'm going to uh, stop us there because uh, the next section is game design. So we can get into that. <laughs> typically at this point in our introductory episodes we'd go in-depth on new mechanics and gameplay. And while V builds off what Peace Walker laid down, the gameplay as a whole is worthy of its own episode, which will be one of our episodes coming up soon. We can take this moment to talk about the general game design of MGSV. More applicable to the Phantom Pain than the Ground Zeros, but they do function in similar ways. Like Peace Walker, you will have a main and side mission select screen which generally allows the player to unlock the next mission after they beat the current one. There are certain exceptions. Missions that depend on you completing several previous missions or having achieved other progression markers like mother base completion percentage. For another example, the final quiet missions at the end of this game are contingent on you having fully bonded with quiet during the course of other missions. And again, like Peace Walker, the missions are laid out like tracks on an audio cassette, meant to be replayed over and over. Though this time, given the larger scope and scale than Peace Walker, these missions are dubbed as "quote unquote" episodes, like television, including introductory credits when starting each mission. Credits that have spoilers, technically, as they will tell you if Skullface, Mantis, or the Skulls will show up. The episode structure is meant to reflect each mission being its own little thing, but it all building towards a greater narrative. Sometimes episodes are intrinsic to the plot, sometimes it's a mission of the week story, and most tend to fall somewhere in between the two. There are a lot of minuscule politics at play that may seem removed from the main story, but as we've gone over for several games now, they'll resonate quite loudly thematically. The rerun concept also goes beyond just playing the missions over and over, but the fact that missions and side missions will reuse key parts of your maps. A palace that is a meeting ground for generals in one mission will become a jail for prisoners of war in later missions. And once you get past Sahelanthropus, this game's Metal Gear, you will be given earlier missions to replay, but with certain stipulations or higher difficulty settings. Those stipulations might be doing missions fully OSP, or having to do them with perfect stealth and no kills. This part gets bagged on a lot, but when we get to them in our narrative coverage, I want to get into my own theory on why they are there and what it takes to actually get through them. But for now, I'll just say I love the challenge of them and would actually like more missions that were purely OSP or required perfect stealth. Ground Zeroes does have its own version of this. When we get into that game's mission, each will have a normal and hard setting in a similar vein.
1: The I wonder if. and maybe this is stepping on your toes for later, but I, I wonder if the reason he used, they, they reused so many assets like this, it's not even so much, I don't think about it cynically as far as like padding the game out, because the game's already big. Like it didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Looking back, because I can remember distinctly in my brain, I can remember both the prisoners of war bit and the where the generals are meeting. And it doesn't, my brain does not, even though I know that's the same location, my brain doesn't, it's almost like, it it gives it a sense that you're there longer than you are. It makes it feel like Venom was running around in Afghanistan for months and months mm-hmm. when he probably – I think in game, you're probably there for like a week. But it makes it feel like more – it makes it feel like you're – Peace Walker sort of did the same thing with like the little bite-sized missions that let you feel like you were building your forces up. It makes it feel more like it's, it's a real struggle. There's a lot to do and it's almost like it gets you like this weird headspace of like almost like you're you're not making headway at all mm-hmm. so you're just so sort of, i'm trying to describe this i'm not sure if i'm describing it properly but
0: no uh the, I, I won't say you're stepping on my toes but this will get to my grand theory and i'll kind of tease it here the way the phantom pain opens and you only see this the first time you play the phantom uh-huh. pain it doesn't come up again it opens like with a shot of like Venom's room, Venom Snake's room, and it says just another day in a war without end or something like that. Yes, yeah. Um, And I think part of the replayability of this is that at a certain point you're dissociating from time and this is just forever war happening over and over again. Yeah. And with some of the more difficult missions at the end when you replay them, um, you have to go lethal for them mm-hmm. because you just need higher power to fight the skulls on extreme difficulty you're not going to really be able to do it with your trink pistol you need to you can't use the uh the water gun or whatever right exactly Um and I think part of that is in building big boss into kind of the quote unquote war criminal that he's perceived at mm-hmm. at this point in the timeline or either whether that's true or not Um this is kind of helping build that because you could go through like the main missions of this game like through Sahelanthropus, going mostly non lethally throughout. Um, you know, use your Trank Pistol and Fulton everyone. But to actually do these missions at the end, you legitimately have to start killing people to have any hope of not just beating them, but getting the S rank or completing all the mission objectives,
1: including Shining Diamonds, which is, it's uh, we'll, we will probably have a full episode about at some
0: point, I imagine. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The audio cassettes are back, which you can play at any point during the game, while on missions, while hanging out in the ACC, or chilling on Mother Base. These cassettes will include the bulk of the story and main narrative revelations, as well as the standard deep dives into current geopolitics and technology that traditional codec calls used to fill. And all the 80s pop hits you can get physical to, of course. Codec calls return, but are now fully integrated into the gameplay experience and not a menu-driven component nor does it pause the game. With the L1 trigger or equivalent, you can call the codec anytime and Snake will get a context-dependent response. Usually it's cause, but depending on either mission or what you're looking or doing, it could be Ocelot or CodeTalker or whoever else. Snake also now deploys with an iDroid, an anachronistic handheld device that allows the player to do various inventory and mother-based management needs. The name cheekily, or clumsily, combines iPhone with Android, of course. The one used by Snake in Ground Zeroes is a beta model, 1.02, while by the time of the Phantom Pain, the iDroid now comes in version 3.02. And like all equipment, it can be upgraded, but we will talk about weapons in the upcoming gameplay episode. The iDroid is accessible during gameplay and while Snake is chilling in the ACC or Mother Base. Using the iDroid does not pause the game. So if you're calling in reinforcements for a chopper evacuation or something like that, while in combat, going to the iDroid menu will not stop the enemies from attacking you. From the iDroid, the players can do the following. Call in helicopters, which could be for exfiltration. Uh, For airstrikes, both lethal and non-lethal. You can call in a buddy or for new weapons or a loadout. Music can be played. And helicopters can also be upgraded and fitted with various weapons. Body deployed. You can give mother base build commands. You can access the map and lay down waypoints and markers. You can view logs of mission and mother base activity. Review mission objectives and intel. Scan documents and also access the cassette tapes you've gathered so far.
1: I love that the the iDroid is. It's not even anachronistic because like that doesn't exist. There's we do not have holographic fully interactive, I guess, personal devices now, like, I guess, like, super holographic Apple watches. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, it's it's completely ridiculous that it would exist in 1984, like, just the, which I think is sort of the joke. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It definitely playing, is. like, New Order songs out of your super high-tech holographic, like, dystopian Blade Runner device is very funny. Like, it, it, it's just silly. But I love it. Like, as far as menu, it's, I wonder if, because that was a thing in the early 2010s, especially. Like, thanks to Dead Space, sort of the diegetic menu. Mm-hmm. And Mass Effect 3 took that to just be like, what if everything was holograms, which, holographs, which is cool. Like, it, it looks cool, but I think this is, like, the full realization of that kind of menu, like, completely complete in-game diegetic menu, which is really fascinating to me. I mean, Breath of the Wild kind of does something similar. The the Chica Slate is sort of that, like... Mm-hmm. It's good. I, I enjoy when a game has a menu and a pause menu. They're different menus, which I think is, is good to do. If you're kind of you're playing any kind of game that's you're meant to be methodical or or like you're meant to plan things out, I want to have like an information tab that I can go in and like look stuff up and plan. And then I want to have the ability to actually pause the game. Like you need both. I think you can't. Like you said, it, the idroid does not pause the game. And if there was no pause, it would be a very. It's just an annoying thing to do mm-hmm. in a game like this. You need to have the ability to like. I, I actually have to leave for a second. Let me pause the game or stop
0: it. I have to take a piss. You're right.
1: Yeah, that's that's what you need. Like, like it's very frustrating. When games don't do that, and I don't think there's that many to do that anymore. But it was more It was more seen in the mid 2010s. You would see it sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's a very annoying way to make a game. Yeah, I'm glad they did not do that. It's a very minor thing, but I'm glad that they um. Snuck that in there with the iDroid, but yeah, I, I love the iDroid. I think it's cool. I, it's it's one of those video game things that the menu sounds are just in my brain. I mean, a lot of Metal Gear's menu sounds are in, in mm-hmm. my brain forever. But Donna Burke's voice, yeah. Well, that the Diablo menu noises, Kotor. There's there's, there's a few of them. Clouds will be clearing. Yeah, the Half Life interaction noise. Like, there's just some a well-designed ui just stays in your brain forever and there's there's a Mm -hmm. handful that are just there for the rest of my life i feel like
0: yeah ultimately it comes down to is the action you're taking an action that snake is taking and then that is diegetic and part of the iDroid. and then if you need to like restart the mission or pause because you have to pee or you need to look what the triangle button does um those are things for the player and those fall under that actual pause menu that does stop the game um, which is just a really thoughtful way to consider how to do yeah that kind of stuff. And we did you did mention too the, the codec and the walkman
1: I won't say I, I I don't have some affection from the twenty minute codec calls that you get in the middle in the middle of a fight in like MGS one. But this is this is a much more elegant solution. The only problem I have with it, and it's nothing with this game, it's that um we'll talk about this. It's my it's my only real big issue with what I played of uh Death Stranding is that and it's part of the reason why I like the older Metal Gear games having this stuff be like unavoidable, like not having it be side content. Mm-hmm. It's part of the, the the appeal of the games is that like having people sit you down and, and discuss where this mech was made, who made it, what materials is it made out of, where did the materials come from, what's the socio-political climate of where this – you know of the minds that this stuff comes from, what were the lunar cycles, all that stuff part of it is t- to manufacture this feeling of being like trapped in, in an information overload, mm-hmm. especially too. that's, you know, that's the point. And I think that works incredibly well for a espionage game about shadowy military forces. It does not work as well about a game where you're trying to connect people. Like death stranding is the only Kojima game I've ever played where I was like, shut, shut the fuck up. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. Cause like, you don't need, like, I really, you do not need it's, not the It's not the Star Wars prequel cool issue, but there's – there's he loves describing technology. Mm-hmm. He loves that shit. And I get it. I, I understand why. But Death Stranding was the only game I've, I've ever played. And I think some of those impulses came from the way that they did it in this. But it's so much more elegant in this mm-hmm. and more necessary because I think if they didn't have these in there – well, if they didn't have these in there, then the, the criticism of this game not having a story mm-hmm. would be actually true. Mm-hmm that's where like 80% of any 80%, 80% of the the exposition is in the Walkman and the Codex stuff. Mm-hmm. And they're great. And you know, they they managed to they managed to get
0: very, uh, a series of very good voice actors to do them, so that helps. And yeah. um and I'll just give a little bit of props to the older games and just saying they were able to make the codec calls like matter or be important. Yes. Maybe yeah. less so for, but I think Metal Gear Solid's 1 through 3, you can think of specific codec calls that are like iconic parts of the game uh-huh. uh whether it's like oticon telling you they're in the elevator with you or the master miller flip snake asking sigint if he could take his pants off yeah like all that good stuff so yeah
1: but then that stuff was great it, it works better i mean I, I am not my hope is that if they do do this mgs1 remake that they don't you could have some of that stuff happen like with the like MGSV style where it's like over the gameplay i don't think that's an issue I just, the pacing of that game is so dependent on, like, the big elaborate codec calls that I, I wonder how it would work.
0: Yeah. I kind of, there There were parts in, like, the MGS4 Shadow Moses part, like, when you're going through the vents and they replayed Master Miller's, like, yeah. Alaskan Field Mice. Like, those are the kind of lines you can integrate during the gameplay. Yeah. Um, but then there are other ones that are obviously going to be ones um, that you would want to actually stop the game for.
1: There's Exposition Codec. There's, like, um... Lore codex and there's story codex. So the story ones, I think, need to be like because they're part of the pacing. You you need you need to remake the the Master Miller reveal in the codec Mm -hmm. And you know, I think we all have anyone who likes this series has an affection for the little codex sprites. I love them. Mm -hmm. The little faces, they're so
0: good. They look great even in nineteen ninety eight. God, there's a so much more to discuss in this game. So we'll do one more new feature, but then save the rest for our gameplay episode or elsewhere in our coverage. We've alluded to the buddy system, which allows Snake to enlist an AI ally for his missions. If this was Elden Ring, we'd call it your Ash Summons. The buddies can be deployed with Snake at Mission Outset, called in mid-mission, and swapped out as needed. They cannot quote-unquote die, but if they run out of health, they will automatically be extracted from the war zone. Via Fulton, of course. The four different Buddies will become available to you at different points in the game, dependent on your story progress and other indicators, where you're at with Mother Base and R&D team levels, for example. Each Buddy will have its own level of customizability, and will have equipment that can be developed for them. Buddies are only available in the Phantom Pain, not Ground Zeroes, and cannot be used during missions set on Mother Base. Each Buddy will have a bond level with Snake, based on how often the player uses the Buddy, how effectively they are used, like, for example, if your horse gets shot a lot, he's not going to like you very much, and also if Snake pampers and appreciates said buddy with various trigger events or context menu commands. We'll wrap today by discussing each of the buddies in turn. Buddies. D-Horse is the first buddy you get during your inaugural mission in Afghanistan. He will help Snake traverse large distances and can be made to shit on command to stop or slip up enemy patrols. D-Horse himself can be used to block roads, trucks, and soldiers will have to shoe him off. Snake can use all his weapons from D-Horse's back, and can even lean off to each side to use the horse's cover while navigating the open world. D-Horse will also have battle armor you can equip at certain stages of research and development, and his coat is customizable and can even be made to look like a flaming unicorn like the one the Man on Fire rides.
1: My thoughts on D-Horse are that he is good. Uh, no, I I think it's it, it says a lot to how well they they implemented, how well they designed him, how well the how good the animations are. That it's the only other horse riding that is as good as it is the Red Dead Redemption horse riding, which is you know that's they put a lot of their budget into that. They put many dozens of of man hours were sacrificed, and, and many many developers uh, were traumatized to make those horse that horse's balls shrink. But yeah, it's great. D Horse is fantastic. D- I use D Horse. I mean, I, part of the reason it took me a little longer to get the other ones to buddy
0: to like up all the way, because I just use the horse, like, especially in Afghanistan, I use them all the time. Yeah. Um, there is a mission, and we're going to get into the missions in a future episode. Uh, back up, back down, which is basically you have to eliminate as many Russian yep. tanks yep. and yep. vehicles as possible. And that's a great one where you equip your rocket launchers and grenade launchers and hop on d-horse and you just have to ride around a section of the map like a madman blowing shit up and it's literally i think one of the most fun missions in the game the next buddy is d-dog or dd after msf's new outfit name diamond dogs while we'll unpack the bowie branding later on suffice to say d-dog is a good fucking boy and probably the buddy i specifically use the most You can recruit DD by the third mission as a puppy to be Fultoned out of Afghanistan, and six missions later he'll be usable as an adult doggo buddy. Like a good smell hound, D-Dog will mark the shit out of your playable field and maps with points of interest. He'll sniff out soldiers, prisoners, animals, weapons, vehicles for Snake to mark and do with as he will. We'll get into markers more in the gameplay episode, but DD's sense of smell means the player isn't just relying on Snake's visual reconnaissance d-dog's fur is customizable as is his face he's missing an eye so you can adorn him with an eye patch or a fake eye and i definitely do the eye patch he can also be outfitted with weapons for either lethal or non-lethal attacks and can be made to bark as needed to draw troops and most most importantly of all you can pet the dog
1: so i one thing i, I do like that the, they don't really overlap there's maybe there's two who I guess Quiet D-Dog overlap a little bit. I guess D-Horse and, and the Walker overlap a little bit. But they all have different pluses
0: and minuses, yeah.
1: Yeah, D-Horse you use to move, to get from one place to the next, to chase. You know, that's what you do. D-hor- D-Dog is, is for recon. I mean, the first time I found out he could electrocute people, I did it for like two straight hours. Mm-hmm. But really, he's for recon. Like you said, the smelling, the marking, that stuff's really useful. It really opens up your just your general – I don't know how to describe it. It's just like your your awareness of your surroundings are really opened up. It's really fascinating to do. And like you said, he's he's the goodest boy. He's the best boy. I love him. Uh if anyone ever attacked him, I would run at them and stab them to death because he's like my son. I love D Dog.
0: And they have just random scenes throughout the story of the game where D-Dog will just like come up and like want to lick your face and like just be a good yeah. boy um when I fired up the Phantom Pain for the for this playthrough I haven't played since 2019 or whatever um the first cutscene I got at Mother Base was D-Dog coming up to me because I haven't been back to Mother Base in 2 years because I haven't played the game it's all really cute Um, We talked a lot about the visual reconnaissance and being able to scope out your trajectory. Um, This game is very good about hiding enemies outside of your plane of sight so you can't mark everyone. So D-Dog really helps with like helping you find that one guy who would otherwise throw you into an alert phase.
1: It's a game, you know, I said a game built around reconnaissance and plotting and planning and he's the best for that. I do also, I do remember distinctly because when I was playing this, I had my television and my bed were kind of along the same wall. I remember that. And that was when I had a bed I, was when I had, my dog was still alive. And I do remember her a couple of times. She doesn't generally react. She never reacted to tell that she was never like, ooh, a thing's on the TV. But I remember the first few times I was using him and he was marking things and giving his little, rrr, rrr. she she would do it back. She'd be like, rrr. she would get up like, hey, who's talking to me? Cause that's what dogs communicate. Like the barking is, is a defense thing, but dog communication is little chirps and grumbles. And, mm-hmm. and so she was like confused the first few times I did it. Like, Hey, what's going on? And I remember that distinctly. Cause it's the only time I ever remember her reacting to a thing on the television. She was very stupid.
0: Uh Next up is quiet. The lightly clad female sniper who is going to be a whole fucking discussion at some point down the road. Oh, you don't say. The player will first encounter Quiet at Abe Shifap Ruins, either as part of the side mission to go save Huey Emmerich, or if the player goes to the ruins while roaming the map. After a boss battle with her, she will be returned to Mother Base, and after a side op, visit Quiet, you will be able to bring her along as a buddy. Quiet can cover great distance with Haste, using some of the parasite technology that's powering the skulls and other enemies in this game. She's able to disappear and Uh, reappear elsewhere, making her especially hard to track and locate. As Snake's buddy, she can go into scout mode for reconnaissance or attack mode for combat. She can provide cover fire or take out specific targets. You'll be able to upgrade both her outfit and sniper rifle as the game progresses, including getting her into a sniper wolf fatigue. Her initial sniper abilities will be lethal, but you can develop a trank sniper for her as well. She's a good buddy i
1: quiet is is more like i i play these games more leafy than you do, but I still don't know if i ever there are definitely missions where you really need her that's like a counter sniper and like just like an attack just to help you attack but I definitely use the dog a lot more It took me a while to get her level like all the way mm-hmm. I was well into Africa before I was like i felt like I actually had uses for her, but if you want someone dead, you bring quiet that's really what it is.
0: I, I also, like, because I spent more time with D-Dog than her, like, I had to, like, work to level her up, especially to unlock her last missions. Yeah. Um, The one mission she is absolutely irreplaceable for is um, one of the post-Sahilanthropist, like, extra difficulty missions is the Skull Sniper Battle in Africa. Yep. And you absolutely... You need to both upgrade your sniper rifle to the most powerful weapon, and then you need to deploy her with her most powerful sniper weapon. And then you have a chance, because that one's basically you're fighting against four snipers and one shot will kill you. Yeah. So that's one of the missions you absolutely need her. And that's cool to have kind of like team sniper battle in that level.
1: Yep. it's fun. There's not much else to say without really getting into yeah, spoiler stuff.
0: Quiet. will at least be a half episode, if not a full episode on herself. Last for today is D Walker, a miniature metal gear of sort that snake can drive around like a mini mech warrior. You get it after mission 13 rescuing Huey and in that mission itself, you are heavily encouraged to use Walker, the Walker to escape before eventually being stopped by Skullface and Sahalanthropus. D Walker is probably my least used of the buddies, but he is super effective in certain missions, especially firefights. He can be equipped with a mechanical arm, various light and heavy weapons, from Trank pistols to Gatling guns, and rockets. It also has a surveillance head that can provide certain levels of scouting, not unlike Quiet and DD, though not nearly as effective. The the player's D-Walker can have three different loadouts itself, with various weapon arrays dependent on mission type. Despite its large lumbering nature, the D-Walker can be effective in stealth missions as well as firefights. D-Walker can also go into tread mode, which allows it to wheel around at a much higher speed than normal. Yeah. That's the only way to... To actually pilot D Walker,
1: <laughs> just reee, coming flying at people like a moron, immediately getting killed. I love D Walker because D Walker kind of sucks. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. It's it's not very good. It's not really heavily armored enough to really stand up in firefights. It's really not any faster than D horse, and the weapons are kind of weird and awkward to use. There are a few. There are scenarios where it's very useful to have, but mostly. Um, it's just there to, like, take hits and, and get blown <laughs>
0: up hilariously. I was going to say, there's um two specific missions I associate with um, using D-Walker, uh, besides the Huey one, which you actually get it from. Yeah. One is there's an airport fight with the Skulls, um, and especially there's an extreme version of that, not unlike the sniper battle we just talked about. And that is a mission where you just want all the firepower you can bring to the airport. Um, Because you're just running around like a madman trying to shoot these guys. So having the D-Walker loaded with the Gatling gun or like missiles is just more ammo you can use without having to call in a supply drop. Um, and then the other is OKB Zero, which is like yeah. this game's like mega stealth um, fortress. That's like it's a really fun stealth mission, but I don't know if it has a super hard level or just to get the S rank, you have to beat it in under like three minutes. Um, and the best way to do that is literally to hop on D Walker, uh, make sure it's as leveled up as possible, um, throw a shield on Snake's back, because that actually prevents uh, damage from gunshots in behind, and then just basically try to tread your way all the way to the final elevator and just bypassing everything. You'll trigger alerts, but you'll finish the mission so fast that you'll still get that S rank. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's fun and you I have seen some good videos of people doing stealth and I'm going to try to do it for a couple missions just for the podcast, but it's definitely probably the least of them by a considerable amount um, that I use. Yeah, I would say so. So I'm going to cut us off there for now, but I wanted to get started with some of the gameplay systems here because I do think this is one of the most thoughtfully designed games of all time. We still have all of the actual game gameplay controls to discuss. Weapons and Development, Mother Base, Cardboard Boxes, and God knows what else I can't name right now. Our upcoming episodes will intermingle discussions, gameplay, and narrative analysis. We'll be getting into the narrative proper, starting with Camp Omega and Ground Zero's next episode. And then later on, we'll be reborn in the hospital on Cyprus, and then we're off to war in Afghanistan and Africa. We'll do our character deep dives along the way, and cover some other fun topics too. Unlike some of our previous game entries, I'm going to include some of our setting and thematic analysis as part of the coverage, rather than just saving it all for one final episode. So, remember the Alamo. It's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcast sounds frontiers at gmail.com and at pod Sans front on Twitter and Instagram. By the time you're listening to this, you have probably heard that our Patreon, patreon.com slash is going to be transforming into a Patreon for my Lord of the Rings podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast. Uh, If you are still supporting this podcast for the Metal Gear (laughs) Solid side of things, um, I would say hold on to your Patreon subscription until September, because we anticipate going into September and possibly into October as we wrap up our Metal Gear coverage. Anyways, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering the Lord of the Rings over at my brother, my captain, my podcast.
1: Uh, I'm still Brian, and it is no nation that we inhabit but a language. You knew I was doing
0: that sure. one. Sure. You knew that was going It sure is. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, the sins never die, and you can't wash this blood from our hands. SPC.